Welcome to Manager Tools. Today's show, The Coaching Dilemma, Part 1. Here we go. We're going to talk about coaching today. We've named this the coaching dilemma. A lot of folks ask us at conferences and individual conversations, right? I only have a limited amount of time. Whom should I coach? Right? That's the question we get all the time. What if I got a weak performer? Don't I have to spend time with him or her getting them up to speed? Yeah, right. Or or what do I do when the time I spend with a weak performer cuts into my time with everybody else? Right? Yeah. All good questions. The time thing is big. People ask about the time thing, right? I, I don't have enough time to do this. And people, I think managers are, are fearful, right? And yet what's interesting is when they, when they really get into it, they're fearful of things that really in their minds are not related to time as much. The question is, is a good one because it gets right to the issue of how can I make my team more productive, which is part of the part and parcel. It's part and parcel of what managers do. Uh, and there is not enough time to get you know, to, to spend on managing. Everybody tells us that all the time, right? I'm a, I'm sorry, Mark, I'm a working manager. Right. <laughs> yeah. So if you're asking yourself this question, who do I spend my time with, my top performer, weak performer, whatever else, you are actually thinking the right way. And that's good. You're wrestling with the right kind of questions. The problem with the kind of questions you're asking is that the average manager asks his or her peer a couple of cubes over, and that fellow, fellow manager do, really doesn't know what he or she is doing either. And we end up addressing what managers are afraid of. Managers tend to address their fears. And this is true for everybody that I know. Fears play a role in motivating our behavior. Fear is the most primary. It's, it is the predominant emotion in organizations today, in part because of role power. So I, I thought what we would do is we just create the, the, the coaching dilemma as a fundamental scenario and then walk through all the rationales for why the answer is what it is. Yeah, makes sense to me. Yeah, let's, let's answer this thing once and for all. Yeah. Okay, good. So look, there are four parts to this cast. Folks, it is a long cast. We're going to, we're going to delve into some stuff that's, that's really basic. Uh, we'll probably refer back to this cast many, many times over the years in the future. First thing we want to do, point one, we're going to set up a scenario. We're going to explain to you about the, the, the four people you have on your team, how they're performing and so on. Number two, we're going to explain to you in enormous detail why the conventional wisdom from so many people is absolutely wrong. This is a huge misunderstanding in thousands of managers, hundreds of thousands, millions of managers, 90% of managers get this answer wrong. And look, we understand it. We just don't want anyone else to do that going forward. And frankly, our third point is the average manager chooses to coach his weakest employee because of fear, because of legitimate fears we have about what could happen to the manager who doesn't help somebody improve. But the answer is the effective manager marginally develops her top performer rather than spending a lot of time with a bottom performer. Mike, you, you have to agree. I'm certain there are people going, what? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, they're wrong, but yeah. You're, yeah. And we'll, and we'll prove and, it. And by the way, and so were we years ago. So that's okay. We understand. <laughs> so, okay. You said we're going to start off with scenario. So right. let's set that up and then we can, I think that'll make it sense for folks, right? If we kind of put some names on this, we'll, it will it will help. Yeah. So, okay. So here's the scenario. Let's say you're a manager. 
Mr. or Ms. Listener, with four directs. Their last names start with A, B, C, and D. For some of us, to make it a little bit easier, we're going to call them Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, and Delta. <laughs> okay. Um, I suppose we could call them Andy, Bill, Charlie, and Dan, but no. I don't want Dan to be Dan McGuire, the Delta person, <laughs> performer. <laughs> that would be bad. It's funny you should mention it, though. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. No offense, Dan. But look, we're going to posit that the performance of our four directs fall into four distinct levels relative to the requirements of the job they're in. We're going to assume they're all in the same job. We're not managing four different types of performers. We're managing four call center reps or four mechanical engineers or four salespeople or four creative designers, whatever the case, they're all doing essentially the same job. Right. So it's easy. We have a high degree of confidence that this, the rating that we're going to give them in terms of their level of performance is fair. They're doing the same kind of task. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what we're going to say is our A player, Alpha, is the best, okay? And our D or Delta player is our weakest, okay? Now, for those of you uh, with individual licenses, you can easily look at the diagram we've included. But basically, what I'm going to suggest is this. I'm going to see if I can describe this for those of you who don't have licenses. And the coaching dilemma looks this way. Imagine that you're looking down from above on a two-lane road meaning one lane going one way, one lane going the other way. And that road goes from left to right, okay? So if you want to draw it on a piece of paper, you've got three lines, three parallel lines, and the middle line is dotted like the center line of a road. If you put that on a page, the top and bottom lines represent the upper and lower limits of performance within this job. Someone who is at the top line or above is performing at an exceptional level. Okay. The dotted line in the middle is median performance, somebody who you might say is an average performer. And the bottom line represents the minimal acceptable performance. And in fact, below that line would be unacceptable performance. Now, it may be confusing to people, but I've always drawn it this way. So I'm going to draw four circles, or and you don't have to put circles, you can just use letters. But I'm going to put A, alpha, at the top right above the exceptional performance line. It's as if A is off the road, okay? And if you're using north as the top of your page, A is northeast and above the top line. And if you want, you could draw a line down toward the southwest, not exactly at a 45-degree angle, through the other three circles that I drew. And in order, they go B, C, and D, Bravo, Charlie, Delta. Delta is at the bottom left. It's, he's, he is below the unacceptable or the minimal acceptable performance line. D is struggling. Charlie is between the unacceptable performance line and the median. So uh, he is below average for the job that you're, whatever job we're talking about, but he is above minimal acceptable performance. And then Bravo is above the dotted line. So he, he is above average. And again, Alpha, our top performer, she is exceptional. Above average, but not quite exceptional. Right, right. And, 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 you know, could be going up, could be going down. We're really not going to get into that right now. You could talk about the arcs of each person and so on. That's a whole separate discussion. But for now, the snapshot is we've got three horizontal lines, uh, the middle of which is, is dashed. We've got four circles spread out in each of the, the four four sections of the paper you've created, one at the bottom, one in between the first and second line, one between the second and third, and one above the top line. And I happen to have them on a straight line going from bottom left to top right. 
at roughly an angle of 30 degrees above the horizontal. We could spend 15 more minutes describing it. I'm sure everybody's going, he's not really good at describing a picture. (laughs) Okay. Now let's talk about this. Okay. Alpha is performing above the standard we would describe as an exception, as exceptional. Some folks would say, and frankly, we wouldn't argue she's ready to be promoted. Look, provided she has some of the next level skills, remembering the manager tools, 150% promotion rule. Okay. Bravo is above the meeting median, sorry, doing very well. Okay. You could build a team around guys like Bravo, solid, dependable, you know, maybe in fact, he's growing well. Okay. Charlie is a below average performer relative to the standard, but fine, right? Not somebody you're afraid you're going to lose or that's going to fall off the face of the earth, but you know, you'd love for Charlie to improve. Heck, you'd love for Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, and Delta all to improve, right? And the fact is, when it comes to Charlie, not everybody can be above average, whether or not you like Lake Wobegon or not. Delta, our D player, is unfortunately not meeting the minimal standards for his job. As an example, he regularly misses key monthly metrics, though there are moments when maybe he shows promise, okay? Last month of his five metrics, he missed the three big ones and barely made the other two, even though they're less important. And basically, what managers have been asking us for years is simple. Do I spend my time trying to save Delta or do I ignore Delta knowing he's a lost cause and double down on Alpha, my star, or as some people would say, or gee, should I forget Delta's loss, not worry about Alpha because he doesn't need me and try to turn B and Bravo and Charlie into two more Alphas? Fun. And what's funny about that is, is once I, you know, people ask the question about who do I spend my time with? And I, I coax them into this scenario just as a way to say, let's get on a common discussion rather than oftentimes people give me part of a situation and then I start to answer. And they say, no, no, no. Well, you have to consider this, this, and this. I said, well, I would have considered that had you told me before. And so I'm essentially trying to create an artificiality. We admit that, folks. This is an abstraction designed to teach a point. It's true 95% of the time. So therefore, it's a reasonable abstraction to use. But I coach people into this scenario, and then I get all kinds of different answers. I get, should I spend all my time on A? Should I spend my time on D? I've had people fall on their sword and say, it's got to be Charlie. We throw D away. A is okay. B is going to be fine. So we got to get C above to where B is. If I can, I had a manager say once, if I can get all my Charlies to Bravos, I'll be okay. Right. But the conventional wisdom though is not Bravo. It's not Charlie. It's Delta. It's D. It's the yeah. guy below standards. That's what everybody says. Yeah, exactly. Save Delta. Save Delta. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. I can't possibly lose Delta. It's my job to make sure that Delta isn't lost. Yeah. He needs the most help, and that's yeah. that's where I'm going to spend my time, on the person who needs the most help. Yeah, and look, every single time people say it to us, when you listen, you say, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the sensibility, the reasonableness, it just oozes reasonableness. Well, of course we want to save Delta, right? The problem is the conventional wisdom is wrong, and all the reasons that people use to support the conventional wisdom are misguided. And we want you to understand why they're misguided so that you don't Say to yourself, look, if you still believe some of these things after this cast, fine, go try to save Delta and we wish you well. We hope Delta gets saved. Just don't complain to us about what happens to Alpha, okay? But we believe once you know these things, you'll say, okay, I had it wrong. I shouldn't be spending time on Delta. Well, we want you to spend time with Delta and Bravo and Charlie and Alpha. um, But if you were to say, I've got to save Delta and you start addressing that 
driven by fear and organizational issues and so on, which we'll talk about later, you're going to be making an organizationally ineffective and, and frankly, inefficient mistake. Okay. So let's take some time and it's going to be a little while, folks. It's going to be a multi-part cast and we apologize for that. I'd love to be able to boil this all down to 15 minutes. It'd be great. Um, but I just can't. But let's take each one of the kind of things we've heard, Mike, over the years from various people, and let, let's let's address indirectly or directly all the possible reasons, okay, and and why things are misguided. And, and and the first thing, this is such a fundamental truth, and nobody seems to talk about it anymore. Nobody makes a big deal out of it. The only time we ever hear these kind of discussions is when people are attacking Jack Welch's forced rankings of people and get rid of the bottom 10% kind of thing. Again, fundamentally, it's all about save Delta, right? We can't do that. We can't force rank people. We, we can't be firing Delta. We've got to save all the Deltas. In fact, it's the wrong part of the equation to be looking at. The first reason why you've got to understand why saving Delta misgui- is misguided is because, folks, success comes from exploiting your strengths, not minimizing your weaknesses. This is a fundamental organizational principle. Our, our friend Michael Swinson often mixes in, when he's presenting our stuff, often mixes in his knowledge of Stephen Covey precepts. And he says principles are universal, right? They work in all situations and they're timeless. They always work, whether or not we understand them. And basically, you don't get very far ignoring organizational principles, and this is one of them. Now, look, think about this for a second. I'm going to say it again. Success, organizational success, and therefore, by definition, the individual actors in the organization. If everybody in your company is inefficient, your company can't become efficient. It doesn't, it just doesn't happen. If everybody in your company is ineffective, your company is not going to magically become effective. I remember reading an email from a bank CEO years ago. Someone shared it with me. And basically this email, after you got through the, the politeness, basically said, we just looked at everybody's budget. Everybody put all their budgets together. And according to everybody's budget, we'll lose $5 billion next year. There's not a magic <laughs> pot. There's not a magic pot of profit up here. And you guys are acting as if that you should all be given all these resources. And then magically you'll get 5% improvement when in fact our goal is 15% and you need less resource. I need less resource uh, requests and more revenue uh, projections. You know, it was literally something to the effect of there's not a magic pot of profit up here that we just ladle out, right? If everybody does 20% effectiveness, this company is going to be 20% effective. So look, think about that for a second. Suppose your company is good at, say, marketing consumer products. Maybe it's not as good at logistics. Now, look, no company is going to say we're bad at logistics, but and nobody, no company is going to say they have a Delta performer. But if you have a strength marketing consumer products, by definition, something else that you do relative to that is not as good as your strength. The moment you admit a strength, you're admitting that something else is, 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 is not a strength. Okay. So imagine for its plan next year, uh, it was going to rely on logistics as its key leverage in the market and, and, and basically saying, we need to build up our logistic strength. So every, our logistic weakness so that everything can be a strength around here. So, so let's build that capability. So we're going to compete based on our logistical ability, really actually inability relative to your strength. Now, look, wouldn't, wouldn't that worry you? I mean, this person, you're, you're talking about when we say logistics, for example, I'm going to develop the capabilities of a FedEx, for example. 
Yeah, or yeah, exactly. Building new capabilities or uh, competing on distribution times or uh, reducing lead times for your customers by saying our logistics organization can handle that. We'll be able to figure out a way so that we can save you money by being better logistically. We're not going to talk to you about how great our products are. You expected us to bring you great products for years, but now we're going to give you even better lead times. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Look, as opposed to coming up with a good consumer product and then marketing the stuffing out of that, which, right, there are a lot of companies who do that. And and uh, I come from one at Procter & Gamble, and they're really, really good at coming up with good consumer products. Swiffer comes to mind lately. And then marketing it. And remember, we're not saying they're bad at logistics, but they don't go to their customers and say, the reason you should buy our products is because we're the be- best logisticians. So the question is, imagine that the CEO says, well, five years from now, we, we solved the logistics problem. Now we're going to worry about another one of our weaknesses. All the while, the thing the company is known for, consumer products, gets, gets less and less investment. Right. It's the same as, let me give you a different example. Think about Walmart trying to go upscale. Yeah. Think about Walmart selling fashion. In, in, in fact, they tried and it didn't work. Yeah. And you know what they went back to? Everyday low prices. Well, yeah. Yeah. Confuse the marketplace. I mean, you don't think about Walmart yeah. as a fashion place. Yeah. I don't yeah. Know. Look, folks, success doesn't work that way. You don't achieve success by constantly worrying about your weaknesses. If you bring your weakness up to average, your strength will wither toward average as well. And Napoleon said that mass at the point of attack. We've said it before. Napoleon won several battles by stealing strength away from the points of the battle that weren't the decisive ones. Literally saying, we're not any good in logistics, but we're going to, we're going to take the guys that aren't, that are in logistics and not helping. We're going to steal them and put them at the mass of point of attack, which is more people talking about how great our consumer products are. Right. He almost Napoleon, one of the greatest generals of all time. And folks, please don't. Please don't send me a mail. Say I'm a warmonger. There are, there are some reasonable parallels between the competition in the marketplace and war. And there are plenty of books written about it. I, I, I think 20 years ago, all the MBA schools were requiring everybody read Sun Tzu, which is really good, by the way. Napoleon almost lost battles several times. Almost. You know, people, there have been people writing about it saying, you know, Napoleon, you could argue he was lucky. He was almost losing this battle when he won it. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, no, that's, yeah. you're missing the point. That's the very fact be. he won it is because in part he almost lost it. But he won at the one point he needed to. And so if success comes from exploiting strengths, and by the way, just, just so you, in case anybody's at this point rolling their eyes and going, these guys are nuts, I didn't come up with that phrase. A guy named Peter Drucker did. So you can argue with me if you want, but I'm just going to refer you to Drucker. If success comes from exploiting tra- strengths, if that's true for your firm, it can't not be true for you as a manager. You know, again, we've talked before about every division losing money, but magic, you know, ooh, there's profit at corporate, right? We've shared before about your team. If your team grows by 5% productivity and your company that year grew by 7%, you're one of the teams slowing people down. Don't be crowing about your 5% productivity improvement, okay? And look, folks, we're all endowed with weaknesses. I'm sure some of you are saying, one of Marx's, is he talks too much, right? <laughs> and I, okay, I, I understand that, right? It's the organization itself. The fact that we organize allows us to specialize, and that allows us to focus our strengths. Organizations don't eliminate our weaknesses, but they, they minimize them to the point where we can leverage our strengths, This is why organizations exist, for the specialization of labor. The organizational rationale 
of any organization is to use the strengths of each person while making the weaknesses we all carry around all the time less relevant and less dangerous to us. So you always focus on strengths, your strengths, your team's strengths, the firm's strengths. Now, by the way, it's possible that your team is in logistics and your company makes consumer products, but your strength may be analyzing shipping patterns and determining how best to use the limited resource of fuel. That doesn't mean that you're misaligned. If your job is to serve logistical purpose in a consumer products company, you may be Mr. Logistician, and that's wonderful. In fact, I happen to think logistics is a really fascinating part of business, and it, and it wasn't 40 years ago. It was a sloppy place in a lot of places, and now it's become, in many cases, an enormous competitive advantage. Walmart, a good example, and certainly in the U.S., UPS and FedEx, the, the stories there are pretty incredible. So we're not suggesting everybody has to be a consumer products person, but we are suggesting if whatever it is the organization asks of you, you need to make sure that your strengths are addressing it rather than spending your time trying to minimize your weaknesses. Good. What we do is we start with strengths, we leverage strengths, we organize around strengths. Yeah, and we, look, weaknesses matter, but only after strengths are addressed, considered, facilitated, encouraged, maximized. And so what that means is, I'm, I'm going to tie this back into the alpha versus delta thing. D is not a strength. Alpha is a strength. You, you could argue about Bravo and Charlie, but the clear delineation is if you were going to spend time, the first thought is knowing that organizations are about leveraging strengths and, and projecting our strengths in the marketplace, you wouldn't choose to spend time on D. Okay. That's the first thing. Okay. So yeah, that's one. So I, I suspect you have <laughs> at least one more reason why oh my Saving Delta is is misguided. Yeah. What's we should next? do a movie. We should do a movie called Saving Delta. Saving no, Delta. I'm kidding. Look, second thing. Managers need to spend time on things in proportion to the value those things, those activities deliver. Look, Pareto principle, 80-20 rule, right? 80% of your productivity or your profits, productivity for a team, profits for the organization, come from 20% of your resources. You, you could oversimplify, but in this case, do you have any doubt that alpha represents 80% of the output of your team? I don't. If you do, folks, that's okay. If you're saying, well, Alpha can't be that much better than Bravo or Charlie, but the Pareto principle says he probably does, in this case, Alpha is a female. So in this case, she probably does. Okay. And by the way, let's take it to the other extreme. It probably, the Pareto principle would suggest Delta probably only produces maybe 5% of your team's value. Now, he may in fact deliver a certain number of widgets if that's what he does. But if the widgets are low quality and if he's not meeting his, his quotas and you're spending a bunch more time with him, stealing your strengths away from other things, you have to consider the total package as opposed to just compare the number of widgets he produces versus alpha. Although there are plenty of cases that I know of that I've seen managers do where they're spending a whole lot of time with D who's responsible for five, literally 5% of the widgets and alpha is responsible for 80% and they're leaving alpha alone. If you followed a plant manager around for a day and he spent his time in the back of his warehouse poking around old stale orders, looking at them, you might assume that he was trying to solve some longstanding problem. and Maybe he's smart and he's going to find the, the hidden lever back there and all the dust. But during that day that he's doing that, there are two or three systems out on the floor and there are two or three teams that, relate, that, involve, that are involved with those systems through which every widget his plant produces go through and where all the profit is essentially created. Now, if you followed him around for a day or two or something, maybe you cut him some slack. Again, he's maybe he's on the trail of a big improvement somehow, and yeah, we want we want that, right? 
But suppose he does it for a week and suppose those key systems begin to falter a little bit. If he continues to worry about something in the dark corners of his plant, while his most important systems work or, or don't work, would you honestly say he's worried about the right things? Okay, let's make it even easier. Your company, let's say, has been selling industrial packaging for years. You're an industry leader because of proprietary designs, right? Customers pay a premium for your industrial packaging that really is clever and unique and so on. And because of that, the, the, because of your proprietary designs, you get a premium. Think about Apple's iPad pricing. That happens to be something that a lot of people would know about who are listening right now. Compare the, pre, the pricing of an iPad to some of its com- competitors that are also tablet computers or whatever you want to call them, right? Some of them are going as low as $99. That's an example where there's something about the value you put into the product that allows you to command premium pricing. Apple's iPad, I don't know what the price is. It's three, four, five hundred $500 compared to $99. It's not like that Apple iPad is five times, can do five times better and five times more thing than another tablet. I, I know there are some people who use the other tablets who say, yeah, Apple doesn't even have flash, right? Uh, which, of course, dates this cast a little bit. But look, that's the nature of competition, right? Apple leverages its strengths, Okay. But let's say your CEO, the CEO of this industrial packaging firm that is an industry leader because of the designs and people pay a premium for it. Suppose, suppose the CEO says, I want to go into, I want to go overseas into much lower profitability markets. He's thinking about growing the revenue of the company, maybe not profitability, because of course, if it's lower margins, you'll grow more revenue, but it, it'll be a lower margins overall. And maybe your company's lead in design, let's say in your home market, will last while he goes out and builds a low-margin business overseas. He spends a lot of time traveling, and the company starts losing market share at home. I mean, folks, do you really think the board is going to tolerate him if sales slip in the home market where there is an advantage, and then competitors' designs maybe trump your firm's designs, even though his efforts to grow lower-margin international sales are successful? I would argue not. Probably not. Yeah. And, okay, now, now at some point, I know somebody, I remember when I heard this the first time, years of Godsman 30 years ago or 25 years ago. Well, okay, but how do we grow sales then? Aren't we kind of supposed to count on our strong products, our strong people to take care of things enough that we can go on and grow other things? And the answer, folks, is no. That's not what we're supposed to do. What we're supposed to do is grow not from weakness, but from strength. That means for this CEO, growing the high margin proprietary business versus going after what is, at least in this example, a fundamentally different business, a low margin business internationally. Our direct alpha in this case is where our value is. She, therefore, ipso facto, is where an effective manager spends his or her time. And I'm going to say it really, really clearly. Effective managers spend time with their top producers in the same way that effective companies spend time marketing and selling their best products and services, and the same way that the best CEOs spend time with their key profit-driving divisions and ideas and customers. This is the nature of organizational life. You often talk about um, managerial economics. How does that play into this. Oh yeah, this is this is really good. Yeah. It's it's one of those moments where I say, "Oh yeah, all this stuff we've been talking about ties together, right?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, think about it this way. I'm, I'm going to say this and people you're probably going to pause, but just bear with me and I'll explain. Any improvement you get in delta would be less valuable to the firm 
than in the improvement you would get from the same time spent with alpha. You're making the point that that's managerial economics. It's marginal managerial economics, but they, but you're exactly right. I, and, and that's not even in the show notes, but you're, you, that's exactly the right analysis. It's manager, marginal managerial economics 101. And this is so easily missed. And look, we don't want to make everybody who's listening into a, a purely rational profit-driven machine, but we want you to understand, we want to provide some counterbalance to the oh, I'm fearful and D needs my help and oh my gosh, what will happen if heaven forbid we have to terminate him him because of poor performance and so therefore I need to spend a lot of time over there. Well, look, we want you to save D and there's a way to do that we'll talk about later and we want you to know that there is an, a counterbalancing, a countervailing argument that is more powerful in the long run, which is you will have more benefit from the firm by spending marginal time with Alpha. A lot of us mistakenly think that because D is such a low performer, it'll be easier to get more improvement out of him than we could get out of Alpha. There's just kind of more room to grow, right? Oh, it's easier to go from below average. It's easier to go from a D, uh, getting a D on a test to a C than it is to go from an A to an A+. But frankly, according to behavioral psychologists and sociologists and performance management and so on, that is a flawed analysis. It's a flawed argument. First of all, there isn't necessarily an upper limit to somebody's performance. There's no reason to believe that a top performer can't grow. Trust me, the job that they're in is not designed so perfectly that there's literally an upper limit and some job designer knew what the upper limit was. There's no reason to believe a top performer can't grow or that a bottom performer can more easily grow. And it's even more clear than that. The question is not whether someone can improve because folks everybody can improve. The question is, would a similar amount of work with a top performer yield more or less improvement to the business than that amount of work with a failing performer? Right. It's a, it's a return on investment. Yeah. Oh, it's a good, yeah, exactly. You're, You're saying it better than me. That's exactly right. This is managerial economics, marginal managerial economics, return on investment. Exactly right. As it comes to individual performance. And look, the data about performance improvements are pretty clear. Failing performers can be improved, but folks, I'm sorry to tell you this, but they're generally much harder to improve than a top performer. You might think that once you get to 110%, nobody could be at 150%, but there's all kinds of stories of people who do that. And look, here's the thing. The issue of value as opposed to just time is an important distinction. Time is the deciding factor here. Improving Delta is not the lever of the driving force. It's not. Time is what matters. Okay. Now, when I, when I say this, and by the way, Mike, part of the reason I'm doing this is at a recent conference, you couldn't be there, uh, but, but I got this question and I laid this all out and I'm sitting, this is at the end of the day, right? After we've covered one-on-ones, feedback, coaching, delegation, and we've done all of our practice and everything else. Somebody said, I want to, you, you mentioned something in one of the coaching questions. I want to address it. And I, I did the whole coaching dilemma for them. And I said, look, it's about time. And I mean, three or four people just started shaking their heads. It was as, as, hmm. as clear as day. They, they didn't see it. And I said, and I said, okay. It really took me aback because I was just saying that and I assumed everybody would get it. And then I realized, okay, I'm not helping the group here. And I said, let me, let me say it too differently. Suppose I told you you could get Delta above the line. I don't think there's anybody listening to this show who wouldn't say, okay, what do I need to do? Yeah, exactly. We'd love it. We'd love it. Yeah, right. And I bet you not only most people would say, okay, good, and I'll do it. Their thought is, okay, just tell me how. 
Okay, here's the answer. It'll take you 20 hours a week. <laughs> yeah. You working with Delta 20 hours a week. Would you do it? And the answer is no. no way. No way, right? And the moment you say no to 20 hours a week, you cede the question to being not about performance, but rather about time and value. Right. It's not that I wouldn't invest 20 hours a week with a person. I would if I had an unlimited amount of time, unfortunately. Yeah. 20 hours a week is a significant percentage of my time. And, and if I'm doing that, I'm not doing something else. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Now you're talking marginal managerial economics again, right? Yeah, exactly. And so, look. Once you agree uh, uh, about time and value, we got to ask yourself immediately, would an equal amount of time do more good for the organization? Manager's first responsibility is to the organization. Would an equal amount of time do more good with alpha or with delta? Now, let, let's make it even, even more, more clear. Let's assume the manager has roughly an equal relationship with both alpha and delta. And by the way, folks, this is false. This is a falsehood because managers almost always have better relationships with their top performers and their bottom performers. But taking that into consideration only makes this more of a no-brainer in Alpha's favor. So we're going to eliminate that natural favoritism toward Alpha. Not favoritism, wrong word. But we're going to eliminate a weighting of this problem that makes it easier to cause us to be right. We're going to take that out. And we're going to say the relationship isn't any different. If that's the case, we have to assume that the manager will have roughly the same impact on both people in terms of percentage improvement. Now, look, at this point, people say to me, and I, I, this happened to me just at a recent conference. Well, no, that's not true because Delta has more motivation to improve, right? Because he's failing. Really? Okay. Separate from the fact that I have no reason to believe that the average manager that we're talking about here has given feedback, has been clear, has been precise, has actually talked to him and said, look, I'm worried you're below the standard. Even if the person gets performance metrics, which by the way, I would guess only 20 to 30% of the people in workforce today get performance metrics about their individual work. And there are people who would argue, I don't want individual performance metrics because it scares me too much, which is bizarre, but that's a whole other podcast, right? I found that the deltas are not terribly self-aware of how, how well they're doing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and and the manager's obligated to tell them if they're not self-aware and and how many managers do? No, not not, not that many. Okay, but here here's the thing. People say Delta has more motivation to improve, but actually the exact opposite of that is proven by the data. If that were the case, if Delta were more motivated, wouldn't that have caused him to get above the line? Yeah. It would also suggest that if they were motivated, I wouldn't have to spend as much time yeah. because their motivation would make up for it. Yeah, exactly. If if Delta has such a motivation, why is there no evidence of it in his performance? Right. Folks, I got to tell you, this is another moment where things tie together. For some of you who have been listening for a long time, this is one of the reasons why effective managers focus on behavior as opposed to motivation or other emotional states or ideas about how we can improve people's feelings about work. Would you hire someone whom everybody said had great motivation, but had no evidence of solid performance? I would guess not, or I would hope not. So look, and here it is. When the issue of time and relationship are considered, it boils down to this. If both A and D improved by an equal percentage, and that's an oversimplification, we respect that, but there's some things working in our favor there that we've taken out. If they both improve by an equal percentage based on an equal amount of time spent by the manager, Alpha's improvement would be a greater value for the company. 10% more 
improvement, 10% improvement on top of a performance level of, of 100 is 110. While a 10% improvement in Delta's 50 performance rating only gets him to 55. And to spend our time where we know we'll get less value is for the effective manager a poor choice. Thanks, everyone. That's it. We'll continue this one next week. In the meantime, have a great one. So long. <laughs>